Hi guys, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and you know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. Today is another one of those days where I don't know if I'm challenging the status quo or joining the status quo, but I want to discuss this article that's recent that uh, I have, I'm not sure if it's recently been published. I should actually probably check the date on it. But uh, regardless, um, sorry, my mic is deciding to try to fall apart on me right when I go live. Isn't that really cool? Love that. I know, I know I'm late. Two seconds. Hold on. My mic. There we go. It's like I, I just go to move it and the whole thing falls off the table. So that's really cool. And yeah, I was late. And the reason why I was late is because I was distracted on making uh, merch a little bit. So I'm like updating all of that on our merch store. So if you haven't been there, you should. Anyway, um, normally it's not this what is happening with this thing? Two seconds. Holy dead air Batman. Weird. All right, new studio problems. Okay. So with that all said, uh, all right. So right here where it's going to be discussing um, Michael Heiser, there's this, uh, there's a ministry that's kind of come out that's called uh christian answers for the new age this has recently dropped and they're basically blasting heiser calling him a polytheist and a number of other issues that they have taken with now granted besides my mic problems if you want to support us have better equipment support us on patreon um so anyway all that said we also are dropping new merch i'm slowly working on it we just uh dropped uh brian's face on a logo with some troll glasses and some thug life chains with our logo on it and it says what's up heretic so if you guys want to uh buy any merch you're more than welcome to i pretty much have it bottomed out on that like they keep trying to like be like hey if you want 45 dollars for a hoodie i'm like let's not do 4500 dollars for a hoodie so anyway um wow you chose me over Leighton flowers that was a mistake so <laughs> all right cool so all right guys we are just going to kind of jump into this because there is a lot to cover and it is a very long article and so i don't want to maybe of course like go through the entire thing because i think it just kind of gets outrageous um because it just takes too long but um right here you'll notice that there is uh so this is christian answers for the new age this article was um written before he passed but now he of course has passed and this is making its rounds again and here's this kind of my general issue whenever this sorts of thing comes up um first off i get it every these are all public domains these are public people um so it's always good to be careful whenever we're talking about the dead um those who have passed on however some of the things in this article just are not true and i think that that is one of the biggest things and i will probably be laying on the being like laying on some serious sarcasm and being quite pedantic so um i just already know that that's what's going to happen because this person claims to have read right here you'll notice i read the first 15 chapters and there's so much to comment on i stopped there the issue is that if you read the first 15 chapters, most of anyone would know who knows anything about Heiser knows that this half these assertions are actually dealt with. So anyway, um, let's go ahead and jump into this. So first off, she labels us as red flags as if that doesn't that there's nothing says uh, open mindedness like that. All right. 
She says, in the preface, Heiser writes the that reading Psalm 82.1, where it says, in the midst of the gods, uh, 1995 New America Standard Version has rulers, was an awakening for him. He claims that any church there uh, that in any church there must be a handful of people ripe for the same awakening, and he hopes this book will spark the same awakening in many more readers. And such language, and now keep in mind, this is him just kind of going, yo, this is what brought me to this. Like, actually, one of the things I appreciate about the unseen realm is that he actually starts off going, all right, here was my watershed moment. I read a verse and it rocked my world. I didn't know how to understand it. So that's what started my research journey. And I think that's important for anyone to have in the preface of a book, especially for challenging very popular assertions and beliefs. It's very important for us to do that. Now, when people talk about when she says like, oh, well, and she, she even admits like in other areas, like I, this is at least what I've been led to understand about his work, like return to, uh, to Mount Hermon or whatever. So she hasn't actually read all his work. So there's a lot of assertions here, yet it's going around. And I'm not I'm not familiar with her work. She might be really great in other areas, but this is not one of them. So, uh, and yes, I am familiar with Heiser's material. Uh, I actually have um, his little trio of books here. By the way, there is very few hardcovers that look as cool as Unseen Realm with demons and angels. They just, it just looks so good, okay? So you should get yours because they're awesome anyway um so with that said we're gonna keep going all right such language is disturbing as it implies and this is where she kind of falls on her face that implies that oh for the past two thousand years christians have not been able to correctly interpret this passage until dr michael heiser's awakening there is no awakening for a christian certainly there is an increasing understanding that god's word as one studies it but this differs from an awakening so she instantly starts say, making the assertion that because of his statements here that he must not understand uh, that, I mean, the rest of the church must not have understood this for the past 2000 years. What's funny though, is that that is actually not true. So one, uh, I'm going to quickly try to pull this up here. Um, let's see here. Mm -hmm. So, cause there is, here we go. Yep. So, all right. I'm going to share another screen with you guys because this is actually kind of funny. So she instantly makes a, a clear, she makes a very strong assertion that Heiser is saying that everyone has misunderstood this for a long time. Now, granted, what Heiser is talking about is controversial. I understand, like, for example, Inspiring Philosophy used to take his view of the unseen realm, and he changed his view of, like, the sons of God and stuff to rulers. There's about three different views, although I think the sons of Ham is probably the, the least possible. I do take the supernatural approach. But um, so one of the things here that she says is that, well, he must he must not realize that over the past two thousand years, he um, church history was wrong. But let's let's look at this for a second. Let's let's see if such a such a thing actually is true. All right, I'm just going to pull you up into uh, my personal email here. But look at these here. Um, so in the days of uh, so this is Plato, by the way, this is a uh, extra biblical pagan reference about allotment to the sons of God. In the days of the old gods had the whole earth distributed among them by allotment. There is no quarreling for you cannot rightly suppose that the gods did not know what was proper for each of them. Philo's special laws, and this is extra, uh, extra biblical Jewish references. Some persons have conceived that the sun and the moon and the other stars are independent gods to whom have been attributed the causes of all things that exist. 
But Moses was well aware that the world was created and was like a very large city, having rulers and subjects in it, the rulers being all the bodies which are in heaven, such as the planets and fixed stars. Hmm. Um, Josephus and, and the Antiquities of the Jews said Salah was the son of Arphaxad, Arf whatever, anyway, and his son Heber, for, uh, from whom they originally called the Jews Hebrews. Heber begat uh, Jotun and Phaleg, and he was Phaleg because he was born in the dispersion of the nations to their several countries. For Phaleg among the Hebrews signifies division. So we see this kind of idea of allotment. And you can keep going through some Jewish sources here. But then we have Irenaeus, uh, a church father. Remember, probably the, one of the earliest church fathers to, that we have. Those angels who occupy the lowest heaven, that namely which is visible to us, formed all things that which are in the world and made allotments among themselves of the earth and of the nations which are upon it. The chief of them is, is he who is thought to be the God of the Jews. And we can see Origen uh, repeating a similar thing here in Deuteronomy 32. On and on I could go, but the bottom line is uh, that is not true. That she So this assertion where she's like, well, I guess the last 2,000 years of church history are wrong. People have believed this for a long time, a various number of people. By the way, I'm sorry for botching any of those names. Um, but anyhow, uh, which I know I definitely did. So anyway, we'll, we'll keep going on here, but I just wanted to make sure that we were clear that first off, she's not on a good footing when she goes, oh, this has been apparently brand new to everybody when in reality it's not. So, all right, let's keep going. So then she claims that he imposes onto the text because Heiser bases the change in how he sees the Bible based on his view of one verse Psalm 82.1, God stands in the divine assembly, his administers judgment, he administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim. So Elohim, of course, uh, is a term that is oftentimes used for God. And she goes on to uh, kind of ridicule him for using this term gods. And she says the word for gods, some translations have rulers, is not Elohim, but El, another word translated as God, God, as God or little g, God. A difficult or unclear scripture needs to be interpreted in light of the clear. So then she goes to John chapter 10, which is very popular for people who actually reject this view of God, of, of like these divine beings. Now, first off, I wanted to say that one of the biggest issues in her entire article, and a lot of critics of Heiser, is they actually fail to understand what he's saying when he's talking about other Elohim or other gods. And now she says that in this term, you know, you just have El. Now, El is another term for God. My daughter's name is Eliana, which means my God has answered. So El is another term for God. So her, you can kind of tell the difference between somebody who actually their specialty is Old Testament Hebrew and someone who is not um, because she's making this claim. That, well, it's El, so it must, must mean leaders when El can also mean God and gods. So anyway, Hello. That's why it actually makes the term ambiguous, and which is why people have debated it. And this is why, for when we're reading the Old Testament, it's important that we kind of peel our Western views uh, a little bit out of our our mindset, because we think God as the one true only God, and everyone else is not a God. In the Bible, such terminology is not the way they viewed it. So the word Elohim, or God in general, was more of a title than it was like a very particular supernatural being with very specific attributes of timelessness, omnipotence, omniscience, things along that nature. So, and Heiser actually talks about this quite a bit. And so it's just this idea of a title, which is why, um, it's not so much like when we talk about even taking the Lord's name in vain, people think it's always like saying, oh my God, irreverently, when really it's this idea of actually taking it with you, like claiming to be a Christian, when in reality, you don't live that life at all. So that's kind of that idea there. So uh, this, uh, it's not 
the idea that the word God is only referring to the one singular God. And um, as Derek said, shouldn't John 10 be interpreted in light of Psalm 82 rather than the other way, way around? And that's exactly it. And that's one of my biggest issues here where when people read like the Old Testament through the lens only of the new instead of vice versa, because if you do it vice versa, which actually makes more sense, it actually starts going away. But I wanted to make sure I also mention in here. So because she basically accuses him of um, polytheism. But if you open up the unseen realm, all right, right here, and she talks about imager, imagers and like this idea of how God our view of God's image bearing um, is only to human beings. And they, the, the imagers are cannot be divine creatures or spiritual creatures, but that's kind of ignoring the point of calling them sons of God, right? The idea of sons is this idea of a family or is at least some, some form of relational familial aspect to it. And so right in chapter three, right off, right off the gate, he actually talks about this where he says, hey, it's God's family in verse 23. So when in the morning stars were singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, when God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were there shouting for joy. But who are the sons of God? Obviously they aren't humans. Um, and then if we keep moving to, uh, let's, I'm going to roll forward to page 28 of the Unseen Realm. This is the hardcover, if you guys uh, ever want to refer to this. So he actually makes very clear that, so when she accuses him of polytheism, he makes very clear that these divine beings, one, are not human. Okay, that's pretty simple enough. But then he also says, the plural Elohim does not mean polytheism. And on page 29... He addresses this right off the gate, and she still has the gall, really, to accuse him of polytheism. And then on page 30, he says, quote, Biblical authors did not assign a specific set of attributes to the word Elohim. So right off, so again, we're seeing here her definitions are off. Consequently, he says on page 31, there are, is no warrant for concluding the plural Elohim produces a pantheon of interchangeable deities. So he's going, this is not a polytheistic view of polytheism, right? And then if we go to page 32, he finally clarifies what he means by Elohim. What all the figures on the list have in common is that they are inhabitants of the spiritual world. The Old Testament writers understood that Yahweh was an Elohim, but no other, him, other Elohim was Yahweh. He was species unique among all the residents of the spiritual world so when he so right here again her accusation is just wrong he is and, and so some people are like are like okay well then he's a henotheist and he actually says that henotheism isn't true either because this idea that there's one supreme god amongst a bunch of other gods and he's like no it's not even that it's, it's that these are spiritual beings and now some people i think we have evidence that the pagans worshipped these other beings as gods but it does not mean that they were looked at as legitimate gods. Uh, the God of scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is considered a spiritual being all his own in his entirely own category. So this is important to understand. Yes, exactly. The Mar As Nick Quint said with New Testament theologists, uh, multiple 
so-called gods is not equivalent to the one God. Exactly. And this is where it gets messed up. And Joshua Sherman says, keep in mind that the quote from Irenaeus is describing a heretical view. There are a number of other church fathers that speak about the allotment as God giving angelic shepherds to the nations. And that's exactly it. Like if you go through different parts of the early church, you actually hear them discuss, you can read on them discussing Deuteronomy 32 quite a bit. And there's a lot of different views amongst them. But uh, as Joshua Sherman said, that's what Irenaeus was saying. But to sit there here and say that this is a brand, these are brand new ideas for the past 2,000 years is just untrue. It's just entirely untrue. And I, your argument's bad and you should feel bad. All right. Heiser's view is that Psalm 82 refers to the divine council. So she goes on to say, which includes created gods. Again, she's using little g gods. But this is where she kind of plays a shell game with the term where Heiser, and here's the other thing I should probably mention, she says he's unclear. In this article, she says he's unclear about what he means by spiritual beings. No, he's not. If you are familiar with any of Heiser's work, The Unseen Realm, he begins the entire book con continually defining his terms. Then, if you go to his book, Demons, you will see right out right here. Oh, what is this on page one? Biblical vocabulary for the powers of darkness. And he begins every book exploring the terminology. And he does that so that way he doesn't have to keep doing the groundwork as he keeps going. Something I should have taken a note from when uh, writing the main body of my work that I'm hoping to publish. Um, <laughs> would have been more useful instead of doing it my way. This is far more efficient. Um, so anyway, we'll just keep going and I, I will I will point more things out as we go. But I just wanted to make sure as when she says that he's unclear, this is not true. He defines all his terms. And that's actually what's the most frustrating. Like disagree with Heiser. I know plenty of people who disagree with Heiser, but do so with like decency and integrity, okay? So to make it clear, polytheism, she says, is a belief in and or worship of more than one God. So in other words, belief in more than one God. And see, this is where she plays a dumb little shell game. Um, obviously in polytheism, it's not talking about a belief in like that there's other other beings that could be under a label of gods, so-called gods. That's what Heiser's talking about. He's not talking about legitimate gods. Like he's not talking about like Zeus actually exists or um, Newt or any of the other pagan gods. But I do think that these other beings probably were the what these other gods came from, probably deceived the nations into worshiping them, if you take that. Um, and then, uh, let's see, what did, what did you say here, Nick? Um, Nick said, to be fair, Heiser was the first uh, uh, testament counterpart to N.T. Wright. Brilliant, but, uh, but prone to over-assertion and imprecision in terms. Hence, they can create confusion by accident sometimes. And, um, and then what well, actually Sherman says right here, he isn't quoting her. He isn't clear in defining things. And he doesn't just use standard definitions to keep it simple. Like I wish he would are two different things. But the thing is, it's like, he just, what I appreciate about Heiser is that he goes, these are the words and how they were used. And you'll notice that sometimes like this is my belief, but he doesn't really like push one view all the time over the other. He'll just kind of explore the terms, but we'll keep going. So 
Um, again, her uh, accusation of polytheism is not true um, because he doesn't ha worship or believe in other gods. He just believes that these other spiritual entities were called so-called gods. But you'll notice in scripture, if these were supernatural entities, as he uh, believes with the term sons of God, then the sons of God would just be spiritual beings who are that, uh, who God created. So you're, you know, you're kind of taking a loaded term running with it. And then she uses John 10.35 um, in here. And the point of John 10.35, I, I should probably read that a little bit, what she says here. Um, because in John 10.30, 10, uh, right here, she says, uh, the word Elohim in Psalm 82, including how Jesus uses it in John 10, Jesus' interpretation would be the authoritative one. And, and we would all agree, by the way, uh, which is another poor assertion where she's like, yeah, he doesn't, doesn't take Jesus's word seriously, but she, you will see here in a minute too how wrong she is. So Jesus' interpretation should be the authoritative one, in fact. The meaning of other passages should not stand or fall based on the unclear passage, but this is the case with Heiser, who view, whose view of God, the fall, demons, spiritual warfare, the division of the nations after Babel, and other themes of scripture rest on the interpretation, on, his, on this interpretation of Psalm 82. Heiser views... Heiser's view is that Psalm 82.1 refers to a divine council which includes created gods. Again, created spiritual beings, right? That's what he means by gods. This becomes his filter for other passages in the, in the Bible, leading to sometimes rather bizarre and startling conclusions. The primary Christian scholars who agree with this view are those influenced by, by higher critics who hold that Judaism evolved from polytheism. Heiser does, does disagree with their belief that Judaism evolved that way. However, he accepts their view that the Bible speaks of real created gods. To make it clear, polytheism, again, she says a belief in our worship. We already talked about that. So, okay. She also mentions in this article and along the lines of she's referring, when she's referring to these other scholars that, oh, he just is influenced by liberal scholars. This is my favorite, favorite, favorite thing about heresy hunters. They will call everything to disagree with liberal, right? Uh, as someone who rejects uh, the traditional penal substitutionary atonement, uh, I get called a liberal on that all the time, even though I guarantee you I am more conservative in a number of areas than most people. Uh, but that's what happens. You hear somebody who disagrees with it, and there you go. Also, it is not overly art. Like, the, the Jews always have believed that there's other spiritual entities. So it's not like, and that's pretty well affirmed. Like, I don't know how, how you cannot believe that. So um, anyway. Let's see, Heiser's, so, the, oh yeah, and then she takes beef here with Heiser refers to Ugaritic uh, literature, um, seemingly applying their views to the outlook in scripture as though the biblical authors were influenced by their pagan perspectives. And this is, this is where it gets kind of funny. All right. Ugarit was an ancient city in northern Syria discovered in 1298. Ugarit texts were found the following year and reveal much about the Canaanite culture and religion. While there were cultural overlaps between Ugarit and Israel, some references in the Bible can be explained by knowing about Ugarit. This does not mean that the Bible imbibed a pagan religious view which is what secular and liberal Christian scholars propose. When biblical authors use language similar to the, uh, that used for pagan gods, it is polemic against false gods to demonstrate that Yahweh is the only true living God. Um, yeah. When does Heiser ever deny that? He, he literally pulls from polemic, and then he goes, by the way, these are the views of these other cultures, and we can see how the polemic is pushing against it. So in the Bible, like, for example, um, 
the Genesis 6 story, right, of the sons of God coming down with the daughters of man. We have the books of Enoch and all these other ancient texts that say that it was because mankind was rowdy, mankind had this problem, these angry little gods. And the Bible polemic does polemics against that and goes, no, it's actually because of the sinful man, sinfulness of man was great on the earth, and there's this divine rebellion that God did it. So Heiser actually affirms this, which makes me go even further, like, did, did, have you read Heiser? Have you actually, have you read it? Like, I don't, it's just crazy. She says you read like up to chapter 15, then eventually uh, finish it later. But it's just still like, I don't know if you understand that he actually addresses these things. Heiser uh, says that Babel describes the allotment of heavenly beings over the nations, monotheism before polytheism. This person, only scholars that believe polytheism came first agree with Heiser. Huh? Yeah, exactly, Joshua. Um, and uh, Nick Quinn says, Enoch speculates that fallen angels gave us weapons for war, and we did the rest. Turns out we didn't need that much of a push. And then Derek uh, says, the common interpretation is Jesus was simply saying, hey, other people were called gods. Is it wrong for me to be called one and, uh, and the same way? Um, so we'll, 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 keep, we'll, we'll get to all that here in a little bit, uh, Derek. And then she says, Heiser's theme is that you will never be able to look at your Bible the same way again. To say this in the face of 2,000 years of Christian reading, studying, and researching, writing commentaries on and exegeting the Bible is alarming. To say after all this and study that there is a new way to read the Bible is a red flag and does not inspire confidence in the person making this claim. Oh, we got the fighting fundy. <laughs> Another fighting fundy thing, right? This is a, that's what this is, and it's a heresy hunting thing. And uh, we've already read the origin. It talks about the allotment of the nations and Deuteronomy 32. And other people have said this for a long, uh, a long, long, long time. So again, she's just emphatically wrong here. But also, she says that high, like basically, and because he uses the term tradition, which is not a positive word in Christian circles because it tends to evoke the idea of following rules set by man. But tradition is not what is contrary to Heiser's view. It is sound biblical, historical biblical scholarship itself. Never mind the fact that he pulls from ancient scholarship and writing and sources and quotes them the entire time. But um, he does use the term tradition, but he's not talking about tradition in like the entire Christian corpus of writings. He's talking about like modern evangelical fundamentalist views of tradition. Uh, and I think she kind of gets, um, gets a little out of sorts on that. Uh, let's see, Derek says, go read Irenaeus, um, Irenaeus's work on the apostolic preaching. He pulls from first Enoch quite directly, but Heiser is making this stuff up, LOL. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, and then right here we have Christopher Gomez says, to the to an unknown God reference is an interesting passage. Paul also goes on to quote Greek poems the, that pertain to Zeus. Even pulling that passage apart would be, uh, be of value to see what's going on. And then, of course, uh, we see that Roddick, I think, says pearl clutching at its finest exactly don't worry i i caught your typo you're good anyway ancient readers we must see the bible through the eyes of the ancient readers according to heiser i believe this is the a and e ancient near east view that we must interpret the content through the eyes of what we know uh, or think the ancient writers believed and how they saw the world 
And then she goes on to say, there is value in understanding the culture and time of the writers of the Bible to get historical and cultural references and context. However, we do not have to possess the ancient worldview to read the Bible because the Bible is written under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. Oh, goodness. Unless I missed it, nowhere in what I read does Heiser allude to the Bible being God-breathed. It is certainly not a point he brings to his discussion. Wow. Holy red herring, Batman. <laughs> like, um, okay, I will address that here. And the, the part about like God breathed and the Holy Spirit, because she goes on to say, yeah. All right. But she says, she chides him for saying that he needs to have like, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. She chides him for saying that we should have the biblical worldview of the ancient text to understand it with more clarity. And then she just does this a fundamentalist appeal like, well, if you can't, if you don't have that, if you don't live back then, I guess you can't understand your Bible. So I guess the Bible must not be uh, relevant. No, no, everyone tells you context is important. To understand why Jesus was crucified, you have to understand what the Roman Empire was. You have to understand the first century Jewish uh, culture of the time to fully understand the picture. Now, you can understand the basic narrative, but yes, you cannot divorce historical context from whatever you're reading. That's just not possible. Could you imagine trying to read any work of fiction or nonfiction? Without understanding its historical context, good luck. There's a reason why even like sci-fi books, they take a long time to build the world around it. So that way you understand its historical context within its fictional world. So that way you understand what in the world is going on. However, she kind of makes a cheap pot shot that's kind of a blow the knee shot at him when she goes um, that, uh, and I, I think you'll find this funny. Actually, hold on. Let me make sure I have this. Oh, there it is. Okay. We must see the Bible through the eyes of the ancient readers, according to Heiser, 13 and following. I believe this is the A&E, ancient Near East view, that we must interpret that content through the eyes of the ancient writers. Now, let's just see what she says here. The Bible was written under supervision of the Holy Spirit. Unless I missed it, nowhere in what I read does Heiser allude to the Bible being God-breathed. Ahem. Angels by Heiser. And we are not, we are in the introduction, okay, on Roman numeral 14. Ahem. If God moved the biblical writers to take care when talking about the unseen realm, then it matters these days that often doesn't satisfy. Since angel, because angelology helps us think more clearly about familiar points of biblical theology. Um, so wait, what is this? Oh, the simple answer is that if God moved the biblical writers to take care when talking about the unseen realm, then it matters. But he doesn't make any reference to biblical inspiration people. Not at all. Not Remember, he doesn't say it. So, it's just, like, before you make stupid, cheap pot shots, I'm sorry, this is just stupid, right? So, before you make stupid peach like cheap pot shots at people, perhaps you should understand what they're actually saying. Or perhaps before you make cheap pot shots at people, you should actually read their work because you might make yourself look really, really silly. Um, so there actually, there's a great example is Brian. Uh, some of you guys might remember like a year ago, I think David Palman and I did like a, um, a little review of the Potter's Freedom. And I, I told Brian, cause he was raised in the reform circles that he should come on and have this, like, I'm like, you should come on and talk about it. And he said, well, 
I haven't read the book, so I'm not coming on. And then he took the time to read it and joined us on the final episode. And that's because you should probably, before you critique a work, fully read it and fully understand it. So anyway, and then exactly, uh, Heiser has stated he affirmed univocality. So anyway, it's just, it just gets more and more ridiculous. So then she, she accuses him of straw man arguments. So, okay. All right, hold on. Let me share my screen. I keep forgetting to, to do that. So let me share this with you guys one more time here. So she says straw man arguments and false choice fallacies. Funny how suddenly she accuses him of a straw man when you literally just accused him right up here of not say, of saying that they were not under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, uh, according to Heiser, or that he never mentions it. So apparently to Heiser is not important. Keep him, never mind the fact that he spent his entire life being a biblical scholar. You know, actually, I'm, I'm going to talk about that for a second here. So there's actually a thing that drives me crazy. Like, okay, if I'm preaching or teaching at a church leadership conference, and I say something to the effect of like, the most important thing in your life is that you have integrity in your ministry. And somebody goes, uh-uh, it's whether or not you believe in Jesus. Yeah, well, we're at a Christian conference. I assume we all accepted that as the number one premise and that you have that under your belt. So when Heiser is spending his entire life doing biblical research, I, I don't think he even needs to say anything. We clearly know he takes it seriously. So it's just, it's not, it's, it's pearl clutching and it's just, it's nothing short of um, just trying to make yourself look like you're more Christian than somebody else. It's just annoying. Anyway, so he, she goes on to complain about um, how he, uh, logically speaking, since Heiser states we need to read the Bible through the worldview of the ancients, that, that in itself is advocating to a filter. He just wants to exchange that he sees a filter for, for another, his own, which is the view of the ancients. And yes, she goes on to complain that he talks about to remove your filter. And she's like, well, you're using a filter. Uh, yeah, of course. But in order for someone to objectively approach a perhaps new view, you have to drop your filter for a second. Uh, this is why philosophers and theologians should be able to try on different views, like a pair of pants. Like, try it on for a second, see how it feels. Is, it, is, there, a crick, is there a crack in the armor? Okay, then probably you should not wear it, or maybe research it, maybe you can find a way to repair it. And this is why, I, even like at the beginning of the book I'm working on, I, I say like, hey, please remove your preconceived notions of the atonement and take a minute to at least hear me out. So. That's like, that's normal, but she thinks it's a gotcha, but it's just, that's it, like normal theology philosophy talk for just saying, hey, before you stone me, please hear me out for a second. But anyway, so she goes, she goes on to talk about the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32. So Heiser uses the Dead Sea Scrolls and the ESV for saying that Deuteronomy 32.8 refers to the sons of God, while other translations have sons of Adam and sons of Israel, people of Israel, children of Israel. This is to use the different manuscripts used for the translations. This is a very helpful article on the textual and translation issues with the verse that considers Heiser's view and then uh, responds to that. And then she starts going on to say that, well, sons of God really could mean like rulers and stuff or children of children of Israel and Heiser's argument if you're familiar with Heiser's argument Heiser's like well at the time of this writing of saying sons of God Israel wasn't a thing yet so it can't be referring to Israel and then of course she's like well at the, this point in Genesis like was it in Genesis no she mentions that another another time that Israel wasn't a thing yet so anyway um so 
sorry, it's a long article. I'm trying to skim it, but whatever. So, but she also misunderstands the point here. So first off, yes, Israel wasn't a thing yet, so probably decreases that. But also there's manuscript evidence. Uh, people, I've talked about this, like later texts switch out things like for rulers or sons of Israel. And earlier texts use more sons of God, which is more the loaded terminology from things like supernatural beings in the ancient Near Eastern ancient Near Eastern world, excuse me. Um, so anyway, uh, so she, she again, kind of misses the point here. That's like, yeah, but in the older texts, we have this. So shouldn't we le lend credence to it? Um, anyway, my favorite too is when they pull, so she pulls right here from like Barnes commentary and uh, another one, but these are all like the free ones online. <laughs> they're not, they're not necessarily what I would consider like your, your top of the line, but anyway. Um, God's on Mount Sinai. And so she also refer, uh, doesn't understand this part. And he talks about it in angels a lot, but Heiser refers to the divine council throughout the book and even writes that no other passage in the new Testament is a powerful as, as powerful in its divine council theology as Hebrews one through two. Once you grasp the divine council worldview, these chapters explode. So then she says, the rest of his chapter discusses these chapters in light of his view. Heiser claims that the divine council was there on Sinai when Moses receives, received the law. This is because Heiser interprets the reference to angels in Hebrews 2.2 2 as, as being gods from the divine council. For if the word spoken through the angels, and this is the verse, uh, proved un unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So in other words, Christians have been reading these passages about angels wrong for 2,000 years. Again, we already addressed this. That's, that's not true. Because, again, Elohim, gods, is general spiritual beings. So angels can be sons of God. Uh, demons can be sons of God. Um, and they can all be Elohim. So anyway. Um, and also, yeah, the term holy ones is used as... She makes this, actually, if you read this article, by the way, link's in the description below. Um, if you read this article, you'll notice that she makes a lot of weird category areas. So the passages referring to angels with Moses or holy ones of Deuteronomy are misunderstood as well in Heiser's view. Even though it refers to, all, like, all these ver terms, he actually shows in the ancient world how those terms are interchangeable. Like, oh, like the holy ones are interchangeable from to referring to God to referring to angels, whatever. So, um... So they sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they have not ha, they had not known. So in uh, Deuteronomy 32, 17. Again, she misunderstands that demons can also be referred to as sons of God. So these, because th th they're, they're spiritual beings. That's what he's saying. So and this is one that I, I want to, I wanted to harp on for a minute here. So Heiser states that unless one is a, a, a acquainted with God's divine counsel, then the first chapter of Genesis is misunderstood. This seems to be a setup so that if anyone has another view, it must be because the person does not know about or agree on Heiser's view of the divine counsel, which is based on what... What is that, this based on? It is based on Heiser's belief that the divine council exists, so it is begging the question. Unless one has certain views promulgated by Heiser and others who agree, one cannot properly understand a number of passages in Scripture. Heiser insinuates that he has found the key to understanding these passages that Christians have missed the boat on for centuries. Heiser, uh, Heiser, Avers. <laughs> Heiser asserts that Genesis 1.26 means that man, by the way, uh, for those of you listening on audio, I said Avers because it's a typo. Anyway, um, means that man is made not only in God's image, but also in the image of the beings of the divine council. This is why, asserts Heiser, it says, let us 
the us, including the spiritual heavenly beings. So, and then she also says that what she's crediting here is, um, so what her, her critique here, she says she actually credits to Dr. Lydia McGrew. And by the way, um, I'm friends with Dr. Lydia McGrew to one degree or other. I've, we, we've been over to her house. I've done him sings. They're, they're wonderful people. So uh, I understand why Lydia might disagree here. Um, but also I want us to make sure that we're aware that um, I think we're misunderstanding Heiser's point here again. So what the argument is here is that she's saying that because Heiser says, I mean, because the passage in Genesis says, let us make man in our image, that Heiser says that he's referring to the entire divine council with him. And she's saying, we're creating the image of God, not an image of gods, plural. But I think this is misunderstanding. This was, that was Dr. Lydia McGrew's point as well. But this is to misunderstand his point. Um, so let's first read what she says with and where she references uh, Lydia McGrew. Genesis 9, 6 points out that shedding blood will result in one's blood being shed because man is made in God's image. Credit to yeah, Lydia McGrew for making this point. There is no mention or hint that man is also made in the image of spiritual beings in God's counsel. The denouncement of shedding blood is focused on being made in God's image. So, time out. In another, I just got done reading Angels, so I keep referring to it. He talks about the us here and a lot of things when, when God goes us and we and in our group. Us right here is referring to like an announcement. So uh, this is, so Piano Pixie 07, you ask the question, is the us uh, the council or the trinity? That's a great question. And what happens with a lot of people is a lot of people make the mistake of believing us here is, is referencing the trinity. But no one really, like if you get to people who read like ancient literature, no one actually would affirm that. It'd be really ambiguous way to get to the Trinity. The Trinity is more of something revealed in the New Testament anyway. Like that was like a thing that was, and we see like different possible Christophanies throughout, depending what you, what your view is of Christophanies, or maybe some of them are legit, some of them are not. Um, so right here though, as far as the us, um, even Jews, uh, like the Hebrews, they believe that it is a royal us, a royal we, which is like kind of think of like when a king makes a new law, let us declare, or we declare, right? When it's really just the king. Kind of the same idea, but with if you add the divine council theology, it's not only a, a royal decree where he's using a royal we, but also a royal we as an announcement to the council and the other divine beings. Now, the thing is with this, the council and the other divine beings here to understand as well is that they oftentimes serve like angels do as witnesses to the events so there is someone there to witness it and we even see like this idea of them like writing down events we see them um him announcing it to them and it's just this idea of like a royal court so um anyway so uh anyway where i hope that answers your question but and she says there's not a slightest hint in scripture that heavenly residents angels divine beings, spiritual play are made in the image of god there's no hint of it besides them being called sons of God. And if we are all his offspring and we're in his image, then, I mean, there's some form of image bearing it looks like there. Not in the exact sense, of course, because we're human beings and they're spiritual. But, I mean, to say there's no hint of it at all is it's kind, of, kind of a bodacious claim there. Anyway. Um, and then she, so she, we can keep going on here. I, I'm going to, I'm going to move down here a little bit because 
Um, I think it gets important. All right, okay, hold on. So I'm gonna share a few other screens with you because she refers to uh, the, what we would call the mortal view of John 10, 34 and 35. So basically what it is, a Psalm, uh, Psalm 82 says, uh, in the midst of the gods, right? And then when the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for making a claim to divinity, he, he quotes Psalm 82. And she's like, well, he's gotta be referring to them as rulers, which is what the NESB translated as, it must be rulers, because it's saying, hey, well, some of you people are rulers, and these are human beings. And so, you know, and so she's like, it's really weird because you're like, you're referring to it in the sense of a mortal sense, which actually kind of, I think, takes the punch away from what Jesus is doing in John uh, chapter 10, where John is actually, where in John 10, he's actually referring to the spiritual beings of like divinity. Like he's like, hey, there are these other divine beings. Why are you mad at me? Now, here's the thing. She basically says that one, he never addresses this, like he must be unaware of it. And remember, she, she said that Jesus must be the one who interprets this. So if we get into this and we go to the share files, let's go right here. So um, I hope you guys can see my screen okay. But oddly enough, Heiser has actually written on this very topic. It's almost like he, he knows about this stuff a little bit. So um, if we go to page 10, uh, first off, we see right here in this paper, links in the description below as well, he offers an alternative proposal because he has uh, some issues with her mortal view. And he's not responding to her directly, but he's talking about this in general. So. He says, Jesus's quotation of Psalm 82.6 in John 10.34 has been closely considered by New Testament scholars. The view that Psalm 82.6 refers to human beings as gods, Elohim, is axiomatic in these treatments. By way of example, in his JBL article on the quotation, Jerome uh, Nere begins with his assertion, Biblical texts that call, called mortals gods attracted attention from the commentators and became the focus of ingenious interpretations and exegetical principles. So then he goes on to say, hey, look, I actually have issues. He, so he goes, I've read many discussions that presume the mortal view for Psalm 82.6 and bring that understanding in John 10, but I have always been left with three nagging points of dissatisfaction with such an approach. So again, he's well aware of this passage. So this is what he says. First, how is a coherent, a coherent defense of John's well-known no, high Christology by essentially having Jesus use Psalm 82.6 to say, in effect, that he can call himself the Son of God when every other Jew can too? It's a good point. If it's just referring to human beings as rulers, then, uh, then every other Jew can do it. So what, what makes this in any way controversial of what Christ is claiming? Second, how does the mortal view coherently explain the reaction of the Jewish audience in John's story? They call for his arrest on the heels of picking up stones to stone him. If Jesus is citing a text that all of them could just as well cite on their own behalf for being sons of God, why would Jesus use, it, use of it elicit such a response? It's a good question. Why would they, if it's just referring to people, why did they have such a, a, a hard time accepting it? My third point of dissatisfaction is more personal since my field is Hebrew Bible. The mortal interpretation of Psalm 82.6 would be utterly foreign to a Hebrew scholar whose focus is in Israelite religion. So again, remember when she's like, well, this word is L, which actually just means this, when she doesn't realize that like he's, it's like, dude, you know, he's, 
his expertise is in the Hebrew Bible. He knows how these terms are used. Um, and by the way, even a lay person like myself who does not read biblical Hebrew has done enough studies to know that he is right on how on the veracity of it, on the variety of its usage. So now let's go ahead and jump to page 10 uh, in this very paper. You guys can read it yourself. So he talks about an alternative proposal um, to John 10:30 after he critique like goes through what the what it is. Because he says that, like, and he points out, he said, Jesus says, I and my father are one. I get to call myself God because all of you out there in my hearing can do it too by virtue of Psalm 82. That doesn't make sense, right? So it doesn't make sense um, that that's what he's saying. So the audience didn't see see it that way, right? Because there was anger. He didn't, they didn't just see it as like, hey, I can call myself God because you can. No, they actually get upset. I am, a, because he says, I and the father and the father is in me. So. He says the speaker, I, in the passage, is the God of Israel. So he's talking to um, Psalm 82 here. It is the God of Israel. The passage who is standing in the council in Psalm 82.1 among the gods. God announces the Elohim of the council are his sons. But because of their corruption, they will lose their immortality for reasons already outlined. All right. He breaks down terminology here. His view right here versus the mortal view, which is what she advocates for. And then he breaks it down here. And actually, if you look at it this way, he goes, I and my father are one. You being a man, make yourself God is what they say. So they are saying, you are making a claim of divinity. And he goes, because he said, I and my father are one. Then he goes on, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he, God, called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say to him the whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? So he's going, hey, these people who the word of God was first delivered to, these beings, you don't get mad when, they're, when God calls them God, yet when I say I'm the Son of God, you take issue? So, uh, and then he goes, and believe that, so... <laughs> says that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So the point has been twofold. One, that Jesus uses Psalm 82 to identify himself as belonging to the divine realm. And Jesus also identifies with the Father who belongs in the divine realm. So therefore, it's not referring to mortals, it's referring to spiritual beings. That is what he's saying. So it's not like he's unaware of this article I mean, of the of this verbiage right so then uh it's funny because even the claim of of heiser being a polytheist re, even uh dr william lane craig uh wrote on this okay so if you go here Heiser really passed away, recently passed away from pancreatic cancer. He was known for his work explicating the divine counsel of scripture. He also argued that ancient Israelites were not precisely monotheists in a modern sense. He writes in monotheism, he writes in monotheism, polytheism, uh, monolatry, or henotheism toward an assessment of divine plurality, plurality in the Hebrew Bible. And I quote, this is from um, Heiser. The statements in the canonical text, poetic or otherwise, inform the reader that for the biblical writer, Yahweh was an Elohim, but no other Elohim was Yahweh, and never was nor could be. This notion allows for the existence of other Elohim and is more precise than the term polytheism 
and henotheism. It is also more accurate than monotheism, though it preserves the element that con of that conception that is most important to traditional Judaism and Christianity, which is Yahweh's solitary otherness with respect to all that is in heaven and in earth, rather than socio-political factors, the canonical writers believe the God of Israel alone was sovereign and deserving of worship because of his nature was unique, pre-existence, and his power was unquestionably superior and creator of all this. And of course, uh, William Lane Craig writes a response to the question. But again, we see a direct quote here of Heiser being like, hey, I'm not polytheist. I'm not a henotheist. There's actually more in line with modern, like Western ideas of monotheism. But really, Heiser's kind of in general point is that none of these actually, like none of those strict definitions fit what he's advocating for. And then I have a screenshot. Joshua Sherman actually and I worked on a little bit of this data that I just wanted to get to you guys. So that way you guys just know like what he actually said because of the slander that's coming out here. And it is slander, right? Because it is, it's not what he said at all. But check out this. All right. Uh, the canonical authors considered Yahweh to be in a class by himself. He was a species unique. He was species unique. In the briefest terms, the statements in the canonical text, and they're right there, poetic or otherwise, right? That's exactly what we just quoted. So this is from the Unseen Realm. Uh, not from the Unseen Realm. This is from this article right here. Uh, hold on. Then you can, you, by the way, you can find this article free online. Right here. By Liberty University, monotheism, polytheism, mon monolatry, or henotheism toward an assessment of divine plurality in the Hebrew Bible. So, hope you guys can see now that her claim is entirely and emphatically untrue. So, um, hey, Nick Quint, stop making fun of my Midwest accent. I'll, I would never say Warsh, by the way. He says, got to wash it away. I don't say wash, although I am <laughs> canonical. <laughs> Leave me alone, man. Leave my Yankee Yankiness away. Um, but anyway, so let's keep going. Let's keep trucking. I just want to kind of talk now generally about some other critiques that she has in here. So Daniel 4, decree from a watcher. So in the Daniel passage, Nebuchadnezzar is relaying a dream and uh, he refers to, oh, sorry, I'm not sharing my screen with you guys. I will get better at live streams, I swear. But I was already sabotaged earlier today with my uh, <laughs> with my mic falling off at the beginning of my live. <laughs> All right. So uh, she says, in the Daniel passage, Nebuchadnezzar is relaying a dream he had. He refers to a watcher in verse 17, giving a decree. Daniel in verse 24 states that it is the decree of God. And this is, by the way, this is where her interpretation just gets absolutely ridiculous like the like there's there's disagreeing with people and then there's just being excruciatingly pedantic to the point where you make yourself look foolish check this out uh, uh, uh what she says in this daniel chapter 4 area so verse 24 says this is the interpretation o king and this is the decree of the most high so she's saying right uh right here so and as Ellicott comments, so she pearls out a commentary, we must suppose that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed in a language familiar to himself and that the objects of his dream were things with which his Babylonian education had made him acquainted. According to his mythology, the god of Nergal was regarded as manifesting himself in watching so that he may have dreamed that he witnessed a descent of one of his deities and that... Uh, 
In this, he is corrected by Daniel by assured that the whole is sent from heaven. So this argument that she's making here is that Nebuchadnezzar is thinking that it's a watcher or some other thing in his pagan belief. And Daniel's correcting it by saying it's from the most high. Okay. Likewise, Barnes comments, and uh, I will make commentary on this here in a minute. Nebuchadnezzar has represented this in accordance with the prevailing views of religion in his hand as a decree of the watchers. Daniel 4.17, Daniel, in accordance with his views of religion and with truth, represents it as a decree of the true God from Bible commentary and, uh, so, 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 Bible commentary. Okay, so, so again, saying that he's correcting it. These references to spiritual beings and watchers are Nebuchadnezzar's words based on his worldview and understanding of what he saw. It is possible that the king saw an angel delivering the decree and took that as uh, the angel or watcher declaring the decree. But Daniel was, does not confirm this. He instead states that it is by the decree of God. In fact, Daniel's correcting the king, pointing out it is a decree from God, not a watcher. Therefore, I do not see support for the idea that spiritual beings, gods, and divine counsel hand out decrees, especially since the consensus that the watcher could refer to an angel. This is another affront to God, proposing that other beings aside from God can decide and decree what happens on earth. What? <laughs> First off... Let's take her traditional view of like Job, like the idea that it's actually the Satan proper that comes before God and not somebody in the divine council. Okay, maybe that's true. <laughs> but even then, we see some, we see people working in the earth. Now you might be like, oh yeah, we took permission, but the but we see that spiritual beings all the time in scripture uh, actually decide and decree things on earth. They do things on their own. That's a decree, it's a choice of some sort, right? So. That aside, uh, if you read Deuteronomy 4.24, so he refers to a watcher, uh, Nebuchadnezzar refers to a watcher and a holy one uh, from, or, and the mo from the Most High, and then Daniel goes, it's just from the Most High, it's from the Most High. Like he doesn't say, he doesn't correct him, he just, he's riffing off of that concept. If this idea of the spiritual being the Most High, because that terminology is used pretty interchangeably of different spiritual, like other realmly creatures right so um so anyway the, the it just her her interpretation here actually falls apart because she's just saying that think about it here when he just goes when daniel responds with just this is the decree of the most high that is not correcting what nebuchadnezzar is saying in daniel chapter 4. let's actually go to uh i'm actually going to do this real, real quick so that way you guys know i'm not crazy daniel 4 17. So if you go to Daniel 4, 17, this is what it says. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to uh, the end that they, the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to them. He will, uh, it gives it to whom he will and sets it over to the lowliest of men. So what does Nebuchadnezzar call them? Watchers, holy ones to the end that the, the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And then we have Daniel just say, it is the decree of the most high. So he's not correcting anything. He's just referring to what Nebuchadnezzar just referred to. He, he, Nebuchadnezzar referred to holy ones, the most high watchers. And then Daniel goes, yeah, so this is the decree of the, uh, of the most high. 
and we see different parts um, where we see when there's nothing wrong with God taking counsel, not because, and this is this weird thing. So, and I, it's like, it's the same logic when people like somehow think that things must be de be determined because God responds in prayer or something. Because like, <laughs> like, okay, so if God takes counsel of other people or, or other beings at all in his even with his omniscience and omnipotence, but even if he takes, so he's, if he takes counsel at all, suddenly he's not sovereign anymore. Okay, so does that mean like if God takes counsel of my prayer, does that mean he's suddenly not sovereign anymore? That, does my prayer make God do something? No, it can move God to do something. Same with anything from the divine world making commentary as well. It would just be they make commentary, and God sometimes goes with it. Sometimes He might not. So it, it's just it just falls apart. I just don't get it. Um, and Derek says it, it is God's decree delivered by a divine being. They do that elsewhere in Scripture. Exactly. How many times has an angel been sent with a decree from God? There's a reason why the term angel just means messenger, right? So when she's like, I see no evidence of this. It's like. What? What are you talking about? Um, again, you don't have to agree with everything Heiser says, but I feel like I feel like you don't. You keep using some of those words, and you don't, and they don't mean what you think it means. So anyway, then she goes on to talk about Satan, and this is funny because she gets upset that, and I'm not going to read this whole thing, okay? But I will say this: she said discusses the meaning of Satan as as adversary, and how when this word is used with an article, the Satan, which is Hasatan, it is a title, not a name. I agree. He also writes that the serpent in the garden is never called Satan in the Old Testament, which is true. Then she's like, however, Revelation 12, 9. Yeah, he I don't think he ever disagrees. So, but the word for serpent here is Greek. In the Greek is uh, office or office or office. I don't know. And it is the same word used for serpent in Genesis 3 1 in the Septuagint. Okay. So she also takes issue because she says that because that Heiser basically says that that Satan doesn't really become a proper noun of a particular Satan proper until the New Testament. And so she takes issue with that. However, if you read demons, you'll know that such a claim is false and is misunderstanding his work. What it's what he's saying is that we don't see it in biblical literature take a full-on form of a Satan proper until the New Testament, but there are threads of like a chief satanic figure in the Old Testament. Like uh, uh Azazel or Azazel, depending on how you quote it on like the Day of Atonement, for example. Uh, there, and then he goes into other Ugaritic texts and these other places where he's showing that there is these other leaders, these other demonic leaders that have led the hordes, all with different names and some of them all inconsistent with, the, with one another. But he's like, no, there is this idea that there is a chief among them, but we don't really see it pop out until that happens. Is it really office, Nick? Is that really how you say it? Anyway. Uh, Trinity Radio says, the new office looks great. Thanks, guys. I'm guessing that's Braxton. Thanks, man. I think it looks slick as well now that it's been painted. Thank you, Josh, our facilities guy. Anyway, so we're going to keep moving. All right, we're going to keep on trucking. So, corruptible angels. In the Job account, Heiser proposes that those in the Divine Council are corruptible. He seems to base this on Eliphaz's speech in Job, 
uh, and where Eliphaz says that king, that, that God charges his angels with error and that God puts no trust in his holy ones. Here again, Heiser sees members of the divine council standing in for the word angels. Moreover, these are Eliphaz's words and thoughts, not God's nor Job's. In fact, God later strongly rebukes Eliphaz in, uh, rebukes Eliphaz in 42.7. It came about that and this is the what he's uh what he's quoting uh she uh in uh forty to seven. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So <laughs> it's funny because uh it's not this is kind of like playing the context game where you're ripping things out of context. Um so, yes, God corrects him, but he's corrected him because Eliphaz has the wrong view of God, not that God is like looking that's wrong that God looks at these people, looks at these divine council members as perhaps failing. We actually see that, right? Like every traditional Christian believes that some amount of divine rebellion has taken place, right? Like angel maybe you take the traditional like paradise lost sense or like the angels falling from heaven, uh, Satan falling, all these, like, this is normal stuff. Like, yes, angels are not infallible. They are fallible. They are other beings. They're not God. If they were perfect, then that would be something that we would consider an attribute of God. So I don't understand what's going on here. Derek points out that um, the rebuke of the diagnosis of Job's friends does not mean that everything they said was false. Exactly. Um, and then uh, the church split says, man, uh, sorry, Nick Quint says, the church split, man, you got to react to this Roman Catholic apologist, Reformed Baptist apologi uh, apologists are both presuppositionalists. Um, yeah, send it to me. That sounds fascinating. I would love to do a reaction to that. Um, so, all right. She goes on about his uh, interpretation of uh, of the King of Tyre. We don't, I'm not going to address that right now. There's just a lot of like, bad, bad, bad things in here. It's just, it's so, it's so, it's, I read this all yesterday and I was like, in order, this would be a four hour stream in order for me to address everything. So I'm just kind of doing a little, little shots as we go. Heiser argues that the angels in second Peter two are the sons of God, uh, in Genesis six, having relations with human women. This view is not unusual. Although Heiser thinks the sons of God are gods, not angels. <sighs> He thinks they're spiritual beings. And he thinks angels can be included in that. I just, <laughs> this is maddening. Anyway, um, again, read his books. Heiser also writes that the book of Enoch informed the thinking of Peter and Jude. It was part of this intellectual worldview. Although many think Jude was quoting the book of Enoch, Jude only refers to Enoch himself. No, he doesn't. Like She, you, she, she uh, quotes Dr. Peter uh, Gentry here. Um, here, but no, like most everyone, every like scholar worth of salt knows that Jude like straight up quotes the book of Enoch and Peter actually references some of the concepts when he talks about Jesus going to speak to those who are in prison. If you read Enoch, it talks about souls being trapped in prison. It's, these are direct references to this work, which was by the way, popular during the time. Now, did the Jews and the Hebrews of the time consider it scripture? No, but it is a historical document that doesn't help us, that does help us inform their worldview. And to ignore that, to say that it doesn't, I think is us to deny lived reality. Uh, so, all right.
we'll just keep trucking here. All right, well, uh, moving on to um, ruling gods. Heiser cites the speech of the being whom most would consider to be an angel who appears to Daniel, speaking of the opposition of the prince of the king of Persia and the prince of Yavan. Uh, this, be, this being is not given a name, although Gabriel has appeared to Daniel in two previous chapters in this speech. Michael is also called a prince and is the one who came to the aid of the, this being speaking to Daniel. Yeah, uh, Daniel chapter 10 is fascinating, uh, by the way, just in general. She says that Heiser contends that these beings are members of the divine council, in other words, gods. This contribution, this continuation of this chief idea presented at the beginning of the book. However, there is no need to see these beings as gods. They are usually viewed as angels or some type of angelic being. This is literally what Heiser says. These are like angelic beings. Again, I keep holding up my books. He talks about this. Gods are just spiritual beings in his view. So just... <sighs> Derek says, my Bible commentary says Jude quoted first Enoch. Guess my commentary is pure heresy then. <laughs> exactly. And Joshua Sherman being the, dude, Joshua Sherman is the man. Uh, I love this guy. All right. Jude 15 and first Enoch 1.9. They both quote each other. There you go. Um, all right. So, all right. Uh, we're going to keep moving here. All right. The language of rulers and authorities used, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 6, as well as Colossians 2, 15, are referring to the ruling gods who were given lands to rule by uh, God in Deuteronomy 32. And actually, yeah, it kind of makes sense. They parallel each other. She says, but there's no need to see these rulers as gods or a part of the divine council. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this age. So because he calls him a ruler of this age, then it must not be okay. But... <laughs> But congratulations, you played yourself. Because if he, Satan is called the ruler of this age, and Satan says that um, all these were all these kingdoms were handed over to me, and Jesus never contends his right to ownership, and it says that we are indeed slaves to Satan and sin and all these things, and we are entrapped there, we're in bondage, and the language of rulers and authority. Then this is all referencing some form of ownership of a spiritual being. Okay, congratulations. You don't believe in all these other spiritual beings that have rule over various nations. You just believe in one spiritual being that has rule over all these nations. It's really a distinction without much of a difference. So <laughs> congratulations. You played yourself. Uh, it's it's just, I, 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 it's one of those things where this is the problem with heresy hunters. Like I have beef with a lot of different beliefs out there, but being a heresy hunter when you don't really know what you're talking about just makes this makes things really bad and just spreads misinformation. Like I think of like my, my grandma who might be scrolling through Facebook or some sweet lady in my church that might have found that article and read it because somebody shared it with her and then goes, oh my gosh, I know our youth pastor loves Heiser uh, because I'm the, the youth pastor here. <laughs> um, oh my goodness, he's a polytheist. We got to get him fired, right? Like that just spreads misinformation. So let's talk about, let's, let's read her conclusions, shall we? And then we'll talk about my conclusions. All right. Heiser uses unclear or undisputed passages to interpret or reinterpret clear passages, thus giving unclear passages a priority they do not deserve and corrupting clear passages in, in the process. Or is it really that these passages are clear and you just don't like the clarity of these passages? Because that seems like it's actually more likely to be the case. So, um, uh, anyway, and 
uh, let's see, because also he doesn't really use, he uses clear passages and those disputed passages, but he just takes those disputed passages just more plainly, I would argue. <laughs> like he's just like, actually, seems like it's pretty, based on all the Masoretic texts of that time, everyone else believes sons of God or spiritual beings. I'm guessing that uh, the Bible must be writing a polemic for that and correcting the record and also affirming the existence of these spiritual beings. She says, Heiser bases theology on unclear or undisputed passages. That's kind of redundant, but uh, again, um, not true. Heiser disparages sound biblical scholarship and study over the centuries by calling it tradition. <laughs> he doesn't disparage it. He just says, yeah, this is traditionally what's been taught, and I think it's wrong. And also, this is like kind of one of those catch-22s, because, you know, he has actually said that he has actually admitted many times that he is not the originator of these thoughts, that he's a compiler. He That's what he said. He's like, I'm a compiler. I am, none of these thoughts are original to me. I'm a compiler of thoughts and ideals. So he's not uh, disparaging sound biblical scholarship. He's actually part of it. <laughs> is part of some biblical scholarship, and he's quoting from it. Heiser claims to have these disputed passages correct, and those who have not seen it this way are not viewing the Bible correctly. <laughs> no, you! Like, <laughs> that's what you just did. And th this kills me. Like, whenever someone goes, well, can you believe that they disagree and they think I'm wrong? And I disagree and I think they're wrong, but I must be right. And can, But can you believe that they say I'm wrong? Like, this is the whole point of this, these sorts of conversations. Have these conversations with me going, you're wrong. And then they go, well, you're wrong. Well, I can't get mad that you think I'm wrong. I engage in this conversation. For example, uh, Nick Quint is in our uh, comments section right here. Um, and as he says, biblical illiteracy will kill the church faster than anything. Nick Quint is a very outspoken egalitarian. Um, I am like a soft, uh, uh, complimentarian. We had him on, we had a discussion. We disagree on some things, but I can't just be like, can you believe Nick Quint disagreed with me? The boldness of the new Testament theo theologian, theologian, the theologist, dude, your name is a tongue twister. Anyway, could you like, yeah, that's the whole point of engaging these conversations, disagree. So anyway. Heiser uses the view of ancient pagans, of unbiblical sources, such as the Enochian writings, and the view of Second Temple Judaism as a filter for interpreting scripture. Oh no, perish the thought of using historical documents that show what the, like, to clarify the definitions of some of these terms, right? Like, like if you read the Constitution, uh, and let's say you had a time machine, and you had the, the, the Declaration of Independence, and you go, you were in the ancient Near East and you found this document and you saw the term liberty. Well, what would liberty mean to you? Well, probably very different than what liberty means to the Westerners back, you know, in the 1700s. Same with, um, same with liberty is different now in a lot of those right senses in our culture today, right? So, and not that I'm saying it should be, but you get the idea. Heiser view, Heiser's view of God is troubling in that God seeks and needs input from a divine counsel. No, he, again, read his books. Because uh, <laughs> he doesn't say that. He never says he needs input. He says he gives them the privilege of an input. That's like he get. He doesn't need our input. He gives us the privilege of being able to come to him in prayer. 
This is <laughs> Heiser teaches that there are many gods, and even though they are created and not equal to the one true God, they do exist as gods possessing the image of God and have a standing in the so-called divine council. Um, so again, the, the many gods here are many spiritual beings. That's what he's saying. That we misunderstand the term. However, let's say she's correct. Let's say he's saying that as many of these small g gods. Well, then it's not polytheism. She's wrong. It's henotheism. But even then, that's not what he says. So anyway. Uh, Heiser teaches that the man, that man is made in the image of God and in the image of the divine council. No, he says this is created in the image of God and that he announces it to the divine council and that we all have bear similar things like free will and moral, moral responsibility and all these different things, uh, autonomy, because we're creating God's image. These concerns go beyond minor issues since they have a major impact on a number of biblical passages as well as the view of God, man, and the Bible. It is hoped that anyone reading Heiser's books will do so with biblical discernment relying solely on God's word as, a true, as true and authoritative because apparently, to her, he doesn't read with discernment. Uh, anyway, this just gets ridiculous. So this is the problem with talking heads half the, half the time. Like when you're in, like, I know a lot of people who have started like different platforms who really don't do the legwork to study. And, you know, my goal is usually to read at least one book a week. You know, that's usually my goal. Does that always happen? No, but it's usually I'm able to keep it within that within that pocket. And it's because I want to know before I critique something what it says. And, you know, even though, like I said, Nick Quint is in the chat, I might not be an egalitarian, but I now respect it a lot more than I used to because I have a better understanding of it. And by the way, one day I might switch sides. You don't know. I don't know because it depends. I will never say that I'm not like there are very few things I'll be like, I'm never moving on that. You know, there, there's fundamentals to the faith, and then there's things that I consider, like, outskirt issues. But um, I will say, uh, Nick, I've warmed up, so I will say that. So um, Stephen Morrison says, so he had no, so she had no idea what Heiser really believed or taught, but she knows he is wrong. Exactly. And, like, when you really get into Heiser's view of some of these things, you get the, you really get the impression that he really was just trying to be as honest as he could with a lot of the data, and it made him uncomfortable. That was the whole point of his confession at the very beginning of the Unseen Realm. And you don't have to agree with his conclusions. There's, you know, like I said, there's other views of the sons of God that I think are are le are legitimate. Mostly, I think the human rulers thing, uh, Inspiring Philosophy has a video on that view. I think it's wrong. But according to her, if you claim that somebody is wrong, right? She goes, Heiser disparages sound biblical scholarship and study over the centuries over tradition. Heiser claims that his disputed passages are correct, and those who have not seen it his way, his way are, are uh, not viewing the Bible correctly. Anyway, this just gets more and more absurd. Um, so, anyhow. So, oh, thank you, Nick. Nick also said that... Uh, if you want, send me your book. I'll offer edits, ideas, stuff like that. I will do that. I right now have uh, Dr. Matt Muzakis looking kind of over it and through it. And uh, once I'm done doing a bunch of edits and stuff, then I'll send it to you as well. I think that'll be helpful. So uh, definitely appreciate that. So this is, I mean, this, this sort of thing. And by the way, if you look up like Heiser and, poly and polytheism, you'll find all sorts of people making these claims. And it and it drives me crazy because even like the gospel coalition, all these people, like there's a lot of people who actually don't know what he's talking about. And sometimes I'm like, is it a reading comprehension issue? Is it the fact that you already have an adverse reaction just because of the type of content? I don't know. 
But we see this sort of thing happen all the time where people, there's like, there's claimed misrepresentation and then there is straight up misrepresentation. For example, I can say that I know that Calvinists believe mankind makes free choices. Uh, however, I would draw the logical lines to say that's actually inconsistent with your view. And this is actually the logical conclusion of your view, right? Because a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Now, so they will claim, oh, that's misrepresentative of my view. Okay, you can claim that, but that's the logical conclusion of your view, so I'm not really misrepresenting it. This is different than that. This is actually saying that he said things that he did not say, and this is something that should be repented for because the man's dead. He can't defend himself. Not that he needs to defend himself, and not that anyone really needs to stand in his way, at least of all me, but to stand in his defense, I should say. But... Bottom line is, well, this, this just, it was, just wasn't true. It's just not true. And Heiser's work, actually, if you understand it uh, through that sense of these spiritual authorities and figures, it actually makes a lot of the things like a, the atonement make a lot more sense of like, what did Jesus have to accomplish during that time? Like, what was he, what was he attempting to accomplish in, in that sense? So, um, all right, let's see here. Uh, can I make this big? All right, whatever. So anyway, uh, any any thoughts um, or thoughts or questions from the audience real fast? Uh, Derek Baylor said, um, is it Baylor or Beeler? Um, I think it's Beeler now that I think about it. Doctrinal development, it's real. Exactly. So that's one of the things that, so she gets mad at him because of this whole thing with Satan developing over time. But there is evidence that doctrines do develop over time. You, you'll see like a small hint of something and it kind of keeps growing on its threads. For example, you see like burnt offerings and stuff with Noah, but you don't really see their full meaning come into place until Leviticus. And it's funny because if you take some of those instruments and things that they used like in Leviticus, you'll notice that there's some similarities to the Egyptian pantheon and like with the, like Egyptian worship, but it's different enough. It's a polemic against, but according to her, if you you pull on similarities between them, you know, it's bad, but then she refers to polemic. So I don't really understand how one's supposed to be pull a polemic without having the proper parallel. But anyway, um, Stephen Morrison said, modern Christianity is scared to death of the Bible. And that is a fact. And what's funny is that they all claim they believe it. But as soon as you start digging into it and you start saying, well, this is what those words really meant, the ancient Near East to this, then you get call, called like a liberal, um, which is just wild because to to um to to quote of course like scholarship and actual studies on these sorts of things is not liberal at all so anyway uh point point is this this it was garbage sorry i was kind of it may have been a little scattered just because I, I was sifting through i was trying to read while also talking to all of you guys but there's just so much i'm like even like going through here like so much wrong in this. Um, and I know people were like, I mean, I know there's a lot of typos in here too. I'm not as harsh on typos because I'm like the king of them. So I have a speck in my own eye, but there, but it just kind of goes to show like, yes, either this is, this is pearl clutching. Like it really comes out of pearl clutching. There is certain people really want to hold on to their fundamentalist kind of views of all these things. But the reality is like a lot of those things came from a time where people didn't have access to all this information that we have now. And so, yeah, the fundamental, like if you go back into like the early 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, you're going to see some views and some of them were really good. Like there's some great scholarship from back then, but there's also like people were more limited too. And there's 
and views develop, like as Derek said, theology develops over time. And sometimes it develops too far away. And we go, whoops, we have re left a reservation. But to sit there and claim that like the, these ideas are new to the church just is not true. It's just not. So anyway, um, anyhow, uh, guys, I hope this was helpful for you. Um, bottom line is, he was not a polytheist. To say that is to totally misunderstand what Dr. Michael Heiser was talking about. Half of her claims in this book, in this article, are entirely untrue. They just, they just are, uh, or a complete misunderstanding of his view, or he's addressed it, her critique, somewhere else. And you can find all that somewhere. So, guys, just do me a favor. Do me a favor. If you are, find an article that's like a hit piece against somebody, fact check it. Sometimes the hit pieces are real once you fact check them. Sometimes they're just heresy hunters looking for a bite. And I've seen this happen to a number of people. Um, there's always satanic panic in everything. So if you're looking constantly for trouble, you will find it. But especially if you're trying to not understand somebody properly. And I see the Gospel Coalition. Actually, uh, fun, let me, fun story time. This happened with a family member of mine. Um, I mentioned uh, to a family member of mine that uh, he should read N.T. Wright. And this family member um, is a pretty pretty independent fundamental Baptist person, okay? They read, get up early in the morning, read their King James, you think Ryrie dispensationalism, preacher of rapture, you get the idea. And I was like, yeah, well, uh, I mentioned some ideas, and they were like, whoa, hold up. Like, he, was, he instantly was like, I don't like that. So, well, you should read N.T. Wright. And so he Googled N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright, of course, um, is controversial to, toward the Reformed crowd. And what's funny is that my this IFB family member of mine actually does is not a Calvinist, but found articles from the Gospel Coalition written by like MacArthur and others roasting N.T. Wright. Like uh, MacArthur saying like, I can't even understand what he's saying. Like he can't comprehend what he's writing. He's a bad writer when really it's just you don't understand him apparently for whatever reason or you're just like throwing unnecessary mud. But then everyone's like, oh, he, well, and he's like, well, I found out he rejects penal substitution. And I'm over here like, he doesn't though. Like I do, but he doesn't. Uh, he just redefines it to the de deuterocanonical curse of death and goes that route rather than like God punishing Jesus in our place, pouring his wrath out on his son to satisfy him by the transference of sins, blah, 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 blah. So he kind of redefines it, which I take beef with anyone who redefines like it does a historical term like that much, like just point in time when it's not that term anymore. But anyway, and I saw that and I, I read all these, I, I wrote this gigantic email in response uh, because he sent it to me in an email. I was like, oh, these are the red flags. You should be aware of <laughs> NT right. I was like, yeah, actually, here's the problem. And I just see this happen all the time where people will like take a popular teacher and they just run them through the mud for no reason on things that they don't, they shouldn't be running them through the mud for. Now it's okay to go, I disagree with their teachings and here's why, and then write a response or do a response, but to sit there and do that, like that's just unnecessary. Um, Derek says teachers in John, James 3, 1, teach. James 3.1 says, teachers will be judged more strictly. Imagine teachers like heresy hunters wrongly calling out other teachers publicly. Exactly. And so if you're a teacher, like think about what's going to happen to you it, or like w the judgment you might receive if you are that misrepresentative of other Christians, brother, Christian brothers and sisters. Like it's okay to critique one another. But it's another thing to just be foolish about it. And this was a, the, one of the most ridiculous, foolish articles I've ever seen. And all I can think of is, oh my goodness, what if 
what if somebody found this article, like my my family member finding that article on NT Wright, and that was the only information they had on it? Then they find out I'm over here teaching our students um, the Divine Council worldview, and they lose their mind because they find out that I'm a Heiser guy, and nobody else in the church has read him. But this person goes on a mission and starts sending this article to everybody and then saying that, well, I could even lose my job, right? Like that that could just happen. So it's just it's just it's it's just terrible. So um also, uh Mandy, thank you. I think my haircut's nice too. And yes, <laughs> uh the the discussion on Unseen Realm was really good. And what's up, Warren? You're nearing the end of the stream. So <laughs> just letting you know. So I guess all that to say that the heresy hunters are a real problem and it's okay to push back on things that's fine but you better make sure you at least understand what it is like for example um nick i'll keep picking on you because you've been in the chat and you've been pretty active if i wrote a response to something that he wrote about egalitarianism and i actually was like this is what he said this is my thought process this is why i think he's wrong and this is why he thinks he's right but i think here's the area of disagreement this is why i land where i land then that's a respectful discourse but if i say that nick quint is an egalitarian because he's a progressive liberal feminist shill well then i'm misrepresenting him right and that's wrong of me to do so and i'd be wrongfully called out so um hey love you too buddy um one of these days we should actually have you on to discuss calvinism honestly i think it'd be great um because you're always told on twitter derek that uh you don't you don't understand Calvinism. For those of you guys who don't follow Eric Beeler on Twitter, you really should. He stirs the pot, but he does a really good job at being like the most respectful person on it. So and uh yeah, erotic, I think that's your name. Uh he says, Oh no, not NT Wright. Yeah, NT Wright's great. Um in fact, I'm getting his uh resurrection of the Son of God today as a gift from my co-host Brian. So anyway, uh that's coming in the mail and I'm pumped for it. But anyway, guys, um like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, because we I did a response last week to uh, um, Driscoll, Mark Driscoll on uh, We Don't Have Free Will. And this week I'm doing a response to this article that I found in my feed. If you guys like this sort of thing, pl please like the video and leave comments. Let me know because I enjoy doing this sort of thing. Um, but if it's not something y'all enjoy, then I don't want to keep doing it. But point is, yeah, this this was just a disaster piece, to say the least. This was a miserably written article, and um, it's just, it's shameful, and I really wish people would stop doing this. Like, it's just, it's just hilarious to me when people are like, oh, yeah, he never said anything about the inspiration of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, uh, I'm just going to read that one more time for you. Remember, she said he never says anything about the Holy Spirit. And he says, and I quote, if God moved the biblical writers to take care when talking about the unseen realm, then it matters. He talks about the spirit literally moving in them, but whatever. Anyway, who are we? So, all right. Um, good. Uh, Piano Pixie says you've enjoyed both. That's good. So anyway, all right, guys. I hope this is helpful for some of you. Um, for those of you who are who were agitated when you saw the article, maybe this can be just a, an area of solace for you, for you, somebody that gets it, somebody who understands. And if you are led astray, perhaps, by su such articles, maybe this can offer some clarification on what Heiser believed if you don't have time to read all his works. So anyway, uh, guys, hope this was beneficial. Take care, and God bless. And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out.
Good Ranchers. Right now, go to GoodRanchers.com. Use promo code Knowles for that. We also want to thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about yes. y'all, but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. Yes, I did. Yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi, guys. My name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month. 